As we look at your word this morning, Lord, I pray that your spirit shows each one of us just what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Revelation 3. How many watched KU's game yesterday? Okay. Great game. And probably if you or I were coach, and probably even Roy Williams yesterday, you know, if you were critiquing their play afterwards, you just wouldn't have much bad to say, would you? Might not have a single bad thing to say. They did all things well. This church that we're in this morning in Philadelphia is a church to whom Jesus has not a bad corrective word to say. We started that last week. Do you remember that we said this Philadelphia church, they had micro power? Almost like you'd have to put it under a microscope. It was small, but it was real. And so Jesus had said he'd open a door for ministry that no one could shut. That's what he'd done for them. This morning we get into the second half of this. We'll start at verse 9. He continues by saying, Behold, he's opened the door of ministry. That's one thing. But in verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Wow. Somebody's not having a good morning. They say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. If you remember several weeks ago when we looked at the church at Smyrna, Revelation 2 verse 9 said, I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Just about the same thing. And you remember at this stage in church life, it seems unusual, but but fairly consistently true. It was those who were religiously tied to God who were some of the greatest oppressors of the early church. So the Jews in the opening centuries were some of the worst persecutors of the church. Uh, They didn't have the political or military power generally to carry out what they wanted to do. Uh, But along with the Romans, they had an intense, fervent, hatred of these Christians, these red-headed stepchildren, so to speak, of the Jewish faith. And so Jesus says here that those folks, that ethnic group that physically is descended from Abraham, and so they call themselves Jews as a banner to say, we belong to God and you Christians, you followers of Christ, we don't acknowledge him or you. Jesus says they're really not Jews spiritually. They really belong to Satan. And you know, often, if you look through Old and New Testaments, you'll see that those who persecute God's children are uh, illegitimate children, as it were. If you go back to the Old Testament, if you start naming off Israel's enemies, do you know that most of them are Israel's cousins? The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, they're all their cousins, aren't they? They're the descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. They're descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. They're the descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's other son. In other words, they're close, but they're not there. And oftentimes it is the religious group, a a group with a claim, some form of claim to spirituality that persecutes the children of God. And you'll see this in Galatians. It says the same thing. So, Here are the folks who claim God's name, 
by right, as it were, of birth, were descendants of Abraham. And Jesus says, that's their claim, but that's not the reality. I don't claim them. They don't acknowledge you, but I don't acknowledge them. And in fact, if you read in John 8, you know, Jesus, in fact, John 1 says, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Now, here's God, the Son, the one who gave the law in Sinai, comes to Israel, the one he gave the covenant to, and they don't accept him. In John 8, when Jesus is having this discourse with the Jews, they say their claim is, hey, we're descendants of Abraham. We know who our father is. They might be implying that Jesus is illegitimate, that they're not sure who his father is. But Jesus says, you know, if you really belong to Abraham, you'd do what Abraham did. Abraham was characterized by faith or trust in the living God. Abraham uses the example of faith in Romans 4. But in John 8, Jesus says, you claim Abraham, but the claim is false because you don't do what Abraham did. He believed. He had faith. He saw my day and rejoiced. He says, you are of your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the start. And what are the Jewish religious leaders trying to do to Jesus? They're trying to kill him, and they're lying about him. And that's exactly here what the Jewish group in Philadelphia is doing to those who belong to Jesus. The synagogue of Satan. Jesus says, they're not mine. You guys are mine. They claim to represent me, and they don't. He says that he's going to make these who are blasting them come and bow down before the Philadelphian Christians. Now, this is one of a couple of promises here that is a promise made to the church that I don't think has happened. You know, sometimes it's not unusual if you read in the Old Testament, you'll see a promise made to Israel or to some specific person or time which you know was not carried out then. And it becomes one of those promises that is going to have a later, greater fulfillment, as it were. And I think that's true of this one, too. There's nothing in history that suggests to us that the Jews in Philadelphia somehow in mass came and honored the Christians in this city. I suspect this is one of those yet future things, hasn't taken place yet, that will be true not just of these Christians, but will be true of the church in general, that God will make those who persecuted the church come down and acknowledge, bow down is the term. We get the same term, worship, is the same thought, that they would come and bow down, show obeisance, as it were, to those that Jesus has loved. Uh, In the book of Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther, do you remember a guy named Haman? This evil guy, he's conniving to get the Jews all killed. And he doesn't know that God is at work behind the scenes. And so Haman has put together a sequence of events that he believes is going to lead to him being honored in public that will require him to sit on the king's horse and all of the public and all the Jews will worship him. They'll bow down to him as he passes through. But God turns his plan on its head And Haman actually is the servant leading the horse on which God's man Mordecai rides, you see. And God turns this thing around so that his man Mordecai is honored by the person who was accusing him and wanted to murder him. That's kind of the thought here, same thought. Those who say they're gods, that's not always the case. And you know that while... In many ways, we live in an an amoral culture. 
There are lots of places that claim Christ's name, but don't show the fruit. And sometimes your worst oppression will come from those who say they belong to God, but don't. So we want to be like the Philadelphians. Even if it's a little power, God gives us an open door. We just remain faithful in those little things. We let him take care of our accusers. We'll keep going on in verse 10. He says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. You've kept the word of my perseverance. I'll keep you from the hour of testing. Uh, I like this. You know, if, you've, uh, if you're at school sometimes, depending on the teacher and the class, you might take a class in which if you score a certain percent through all your tests, you can skip the final. You ever had one of those classes where the final becomes optional? Because your performance through the class period has been good enough, the teacher knows you know it, and they'll let you pass the final test. That's kind of the thought here. That student who's had those A's on the test throughout the class has demonstrated they've already acquired the material, they know it, they've learned it, and the teacher says, hey, you're good to go, there's no final. That's kind of what God says here to the Philadelphians. He says, you've kept my word, I'm going to keep you from the final test. You've already been faithful, you've already proven yourself, as it were. So there's no need for a final test for you. You've already demonstrated how you've kept the word of my perseverance. So he says the final he's keeping them from is the hour of testing. Hannah, what do we do with this? What is the hour of testing? We'll look at that in just a minute. But he's going to keep them from the final. They don't have to take it. They've already proven their worth. But for the world, see, he says the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, just like the student in the classroom, those tests along the way, they prove what the student knows, right? Can't argue about that. If if this is the body of information you're responsible for and you get an A on the test, you show that you know it. If you get an F on the test, you show that you don't know it. The test reveals what you know. And that's the thought throughout most of Scripture if you see something about testing, being tested. And you know, the the best example of this is if you take ore out of the ground, this is the thought. Take ore out of the ground, put it in the fire, what happens? If the fire's hot enough, it's reduced to its essential characteristics, isn't it? And so whatever's in that ore seeks its own level. So if there's gold in it, it's heavy, it'd be at the bottom. But anyway, in the order of its weight, maybe it's atomic mass, I don't know. Uh, It'll separate out. You'll know what's there. You can't hide it because the fire absolutely reveals the essential quality of what you heated. And that's true of testing in the biblical sense. The test proves what's there. So Jesus says, you've already passed your test, but I'm going to test the world now. Why? Because I want to show clearly the stuff the world is made of. I'm going to put the world through an hour of testing in which what they are will become fully evident. The world's got a final to take, and I'm, I'm sitting at the head of the class. I'm giving the test. If we say, what is the hour of testing? This becomes kind of a big deal, and uh, this will become far more involved than I'm going to go into this morning, but uh, in my opinion... Uh, The hour of testing is what is called the Great Tribulation, a seven-year period yet to come, uh, future, 
uh, in which God will test the world. And if you want to read about those seven-year periods, just keep reading in Revelation from chapter 6 through 19. We read about the hour of testing. And again, if the thought is Jesus is going to prove what the world is made of, think about these chapters. Let me give you a couple of verses further down the road. Remember, the test shows what's there. It only proves what's real. Revelation 9, verses 20 and 21. God is pouring out on the earth bowls of wrath, as it were, plagues, oh, just disasters of one kind and another. And those on the earth, they know where it's coming from. They know where it's coming from. In Revelation 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands so as not to worship demons and idols. See, they understand that the plagues are called by God to repent. And their response is, no thanks. In verse 21, they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. They know where the plagues come from. They know it's a call by God to repent, and they say, no thanks. In Revelation 16, at verses 9 and 11, Men were scorched with fierce heat. The sun is going to be unusually hot. Some protection in the air is taken away. Something. Scorched with fierce heat, they, this is their response. Remember, when you turn up the heat, you find out what's there. They blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues. They did not repent so as to give him glory. Verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. You see, when God turns the heat up, the response from those in the world is to shake their fist at God and say, well, we're going to have it our way. We're not going to submit to you. We reject you. We reject your son. In fact, it's during this period in which the Antichrist, the Antichrist comes. Satan's man, the world, what do they do with him? They accept him. They accept him. In other words, this time period coming up, Jesus says, it's a test. It's there to show what's there. And as we read ahead, get ahead into the story, we realize that the test proves that the world is absolutely, adamantly opposed to God and to his Christ. The Philadelphians aren't going to be there for the test. God says, you've persevered. You've proven your faith. You're excused from the final." And while this gets into larger prophetic uh, substances, uh, this is part of the argument for a, what's called a pre-wrath rapture or a pre-tribulation rapture that the church would be removed from the world before this last seven-year period occurs. We spoke about this more when we were in Daniel's, uh, the book of Daniel, because the 70 periods of seven years is articulated there, and we won't go into that this morning. But the big thing is... You've already passed the test. I'm going to test the world, and you don't need to worry about it. There's no final test for you. Your worth, your faithfulness has already been proven. I think at verse 11, this is kind of just, it's a brief reminder. It's like a parenthetical thought. He said, uh, those who oppose you, they're going to come and bow down to you. You're spared the final test. And, by the way, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. This is what's coming ahead. And by the way, remember, it won't be long. When I come, it's in a hurry. Be ready. 
We've looked at this in several other churches. And, you know, it just bears repeating. Jesus says so many times, be ready, that it's got to mean that your temptation and mine is to drop the ball and to quit the race early. Because he says over and over and over again to these churches, finish the race, finish the course, remain faithful. So in light of saying, your enemy are going to bow down to you, you're past the final test, there might be the temptation, oh good, I I know how the story ends, I'm going to relax, take it easy, I'm going to walk across the finish line. He says, don't do that, finish strong, finish the race, don't give up now. At verse 12, in the last of these promises to this faithful Philadelphian church, Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He won't go out from it anymore, and I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I confess, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes the most difficult passages in here to uh, get to know, what what does this mean, are the promises. And you know, uh, he's happy this morning, Joe. We'll take that. Uh, You know, frankly, I read some of these promises and they just don't sound very good to me. If I picture myself stuck in a building as a pillar, like these posts we've got here, these are pillars. And they're this load-bearing member stuck in one place in a building. This does not sound like much of a reward to me. And if that's what you think of, it, would, it wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't. That's probably not the thought, though. Uh, you remember, this would be true not just for the temple at Jerusalem, but for other pagan temples, too. Do you remember, if you were a Jew and you were going up to the temple at Jerusalem, do you remember what stood outside in front of the temple? Not the tabernacle in the wilderness, but the temple. Two tall columns, two tall pillars. Boaz, and I think the other one was Jachin, or J-A-C-H-I-N. Name, and see, they didn't hold up any weight. They were these decorations on both sides of the entry into the temple. They were decorations. They didn't hold anything up. This would be more like the thought of, you know, the Arch de Triomphe in Paris? It's a monument, and it recalls something or someone. That's the thought here. Jesus isn't saying you're stuck in a building holding up the roof. More that you're like an ornament in my temple. You're privileged to stand in my presence. And you're this thing of beauty and attraction and your presence like these statues is a memorial to your faithfulness like the arch in Paris that's the thought you're a pillar a decoration an ornament in God's temple in his temple in his presence that's the thought again you know if someone said Mike you get to live for the next hundred years in a church building. And I know all the wide worlds out there. You know what I think? Wow, some reward. I'm stuck in a church. That's not the thought either. Listen to what David says in Psalm 27. This goes along with this thought that it's not that you're stuck in a church in one place holding up a building. Nope, you're a decoration or an ornament. And it's not that you're stuck in one place in heaven 
in eternity forever. It's that you're with God. You're where God is. That's the thought. So listen to David in Psalm 27, verse 4. Now remember, David is the king of Israel. He's a wealthy individual. He can go where he wants, when he wants, and do what he wants. He can can do anything. And this is what he says in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell, that I may live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or meditate or think about him in his temple, in his presence. What David prayed for in Psalm 27, 4, Jesus promises to you and I. He says, guys, where I am, you'll be. And not only will you be where I am, but you're going to be like a graceful column in my presence. It's going to be a reminder of your faithfulness in the past. You'll be where I am, and you'll be a, like an ornament in my presence, a pillar in my temple, in the temple of my God. Now, when Jesus says that he is going to write on him the name of God and the new city, God's city, and Jesus' new name, frankly, this doesn't thrill me either. My first thought is I feel like I've got a stamp on my forehead, like a tattoo across my, the top of my eyes. I'm thinking, this Christian doesn't do a thing for me. Not a thing. Probably short of the mark again here too, though. The thought here is that uh, Jesus is going to mark you and I out as those who uniquely belong to him. And anyone that sees us will know they belong to God. They're part of his bride, the church. So it's not like being tattooed. This is more like if you go to the best school in the world, if you go to Yale, and Yale has a school uniform, you know that when you're dressed in the uniform, everyone knows you go to the best school. Or if you're married to the most handsome, successful guy, or to the most attractive, gracious woman, the wedding ring on your hand signifies who you belong to. And that's not odious, that's honorable. It signifies who you belong to, calls out who you belong to. Or if you're Dorothy and you've got the ruby slippers on, you know who you are and where you're going. And that's the thought here. Jesus says, I am going to mark you out as uniquely belonging to me. Everyone who sees you is going to know that you're mine. You're mine. This, uh, this thing with naming, do you remember in uh, Genesis, uh, Adam names the animals and he names Eve. And parents name their children. <clears throat> the one in authority always names the one under authority. And not only does the one in authority name, <clears throat> it's a sign of ownership, isn't it? Or identification. So Jesus says, guys, you belong to me. And everyone who sees you is going to know it. Now, when this says he puts on them God's name and the new city's name, God's new city, and his name, put yourself in first century mindset of a Jew. You know, when the Jews thought about God, they didn't have a name to call him, did they? You know, Jews wouldn't pronounce a name for God. When God says to Moses, I am that I am, the Jews won't spell that out 
because they understand God is holy, separate from man, and we're not going to sin by presuming to speak his name. So the Jews write God's name as Y-H-W-H. No vowels. Why? So you never pronounce God's name. He's too holy and we're not. So imagine you're a first century Jewish Christian and Jesus tells you that you will bear God's name. He'll put his name, a name they wouldn't dare to speak, he'll put his name on you. And Jesus, God the Son, will put his name, his divine name on you. This was mind-boggling. And we've said before, you know, God created creatures in the garden that would know him and fellowship with him, and that was good. But in redemption, he makes sons, this intimate family relationship, that's better. Or a bride, the picture of the bride, that's as close a union as you can get, a bride and a groom. That's what he says he does now. And in this verse, he's saying, guys, you're going to bear my name. Everyone will know you belong to me. In Psalm 87, verse 6, this psalm looks forward to the millennium when King Jesus is ruling in Jerusalem, ruling the world for a thousand years. It says the Lord's going to look out, just, just like counting people doing a census, the Lord shall count when he registers the people and he'll say, this one was born there in Jerusalem. They're special because they belong to my city. And when I'm seeing these people, I'm going to say, hey, that one's from Jerusalem, my city. Or listen to this out of Isaiah 44, verse 5. During the same time period, yet in the future, this one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will get his pen out or his tattoo and he'll write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And he'll name Israel's name with honor. See, what, what a Jew will do in the future, in the millennium, I am God's. Jesus says he'll do for us. He's going to put his name on us. We don't even have to do it ourselves. We don't have to get the tattoo thing out. He'll do it for us. What the Jews are dreaming about for the future, Jesus says, I give it to you guys. You're mine, and everyone will know it. In the end, Jesus is saying, guys, you who have demonstrated faith in me, you've already proven your worth, as it were. You've passed the test. You're spared the final. You won't be there for the final test. And you're going to be like a pillar in my courts. You're going to be where I am, honored in my presence, and you're going to bear my name and my Father's name and the new Jerusalem's name. He is elevating us as high as we can go. As high as we can go. We can't get any higher. We can't get any more important. And remember that in the end, he does all this to creatures like you and I who simply entrust ourselves to him and walk out that faithfulness. That's why he says, he says don't lay down your crown. Don't give up early. You've been faithful. Just finish the race. Just finish the race. Your crown's in heaven. You'll be a pillar in my temple. You'll bear my name. He set all that aside for us. Let's pray. Lord, I think of those verses uh, out of Romans and Corinthians uh, that state we can't conceive or it's not 
worth comparing anything we can know here and now on the earth with the glorious future you have planned for us. The Keith Green song says that it'll be like waking up from a dream. Lord, you woke us up when you saved us, when we trusted you for salvation. We were dead and then we were made alive. And yet now on the earth, Lord, we still bear our sinful nature. And when we wake free from our body and the sin that's attached to it, Lord, it will be like coming fully out of that dream world. We'll wake into your presence. We'll see you as you are. We'll be with you. You'll honor us, Lord, creatures like us who simply said yes to you, who did the only thing that a creature should to a creator, simply followed you and trusted ourselves to you. Lord, you make this so simple. Help each of us to guard what you've entrusted to us. Help us to keep entrusting ourselves to you day by day by doing the little things with the open doors you've given us. Lord, thanks that you're going to call us. You call us now. You acknowledge us now. Christians, little Christs, little followers of your son Jesus, help us to exult, Lord, even now in our humility. Exult in the glory of your son and the future you have promised us with him and with you. We rejoice in Jesus' name before you, Lord. Amen.